Welcome back to Other Tone. This episode is Malcolm Gladwell and Kenya Barris. I literally planned out questions for like a week trying to figure out what I was going to ask these two. And the funniest part about this episode is I didn't get to ask any of those because these guys <laughs> just went off on their own talking about everything from like comedy to uh, black ownership um, and what's going on today in the culture. And I I just sat back and learned. I just kept learning for the for most of this. Yeah, it was just so so much information flying back and forth. I felt like a kid like you, you ever see a kid like jumping rope like in double dutch and he like waiting for the perfect time to jump in and you just like go now i'm like oh no i can't go now then i miss it but it was so much information man and i learned so much they covered a lot of ground a lot of ground a lot of ground this was a great episode man i i think you guys are gonna love this episode definitely Other tone, 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 tone. Other tone, 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 tone. How's that? Yeah. Hello? What's going on? What's up, guys? You can hear me fine, right? Yeah, you sound good, Scott. I like that. Thank you. Malcolm, the last time we talked, I was like kindly begging you to write a book on Virginia. Or? Yeah, I was like, man, you got to write one. I mean, this guy, like the way he writes, it's like, there's like a lot of historical value, but then there's also like a, an incredible point of view that I feel like it's just like he decodes things to me. And, and I mean, I guess that's what all writers are supposed to do, but I think Malcolm really does that. Like he decodes. I, I think my nightmare would be if Malcolm decided to come after me and write a book on me. <laughs> <laughs> that's never going to happen. Could you, you know, imagine like never... the amount of depth that like it'd be like? I, I, <laughs> I only write layers. Write... I, I, I'm, I'm much too nice to, uh, it would, it would be, uh, no, it only, it would only be good things would come of that. <laughs> so how do you guys know each other? I walked up on Malcolm at Jelena and on Abikini. He was eating by himself and I attacked him and I was just telling him what a fan I was. I didn't see him again for years. And then I watched Black AF and thought it was so fucking amazing. I loved that show. And so I some I wrangled his cell phone number from some friend of mine and I just texted him. That was back in was it April? I can't remember. Yeah, right when uh, pandemic was starting. Right when pandemic was starting. I'm just a massive fan. That's that's basically the basis of it. Um, but we have only met in person that one time when you came up to my table years ago in in Jelena. But I and I was a I'm a massive fan of 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 yours, Malcolm, and I, I attacked you at Jelena. Tried while you were just trying to enjoy a solo <laughs> Italian dinner. Um, you know, I I don't remember how how I met you, Pharrell, but you know, I, I told you I think you're the you're the best in, in the business. I'm just a, a huge fan of both you guys. So, wow, thank you again. Thank you for doing this, P. You know, um, your conversation with me just changed my life in terms of ownership we had a big conversation you mentored me in a very soft-spoken for our way but it, it stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know advice means nothing if there's no point of reference and point of inspiration and I feel like whatever advice I was able to impart to you was about you and therefore I wouldn't be able to say any of those things if it weren't for the spirit um the freeing spirit 
that's what you guys both have in common. Like you guys are both freeing spirits. Like you just, um, you know how to liberate people, whether it's through a book or a television show or a movie. You have the ability to inspire people to be set free by themselves, by the way. Because this guy dives in. It's a gift. Yeah, man. It's next level. Wait, what was the advice? I want to hear what the advice was. He talked about ownership and he was saying he was building a studio in Virginia. But he just was like, you know, the idea of having equity and and sort of forging our own stories is where we you know where we need to go. And so that's where the conversation start, kind of started with having talks about doing a separate studio and having some equity. And it really, it went back to Pharrell's conversation about having some sort of equity and having some sort of, you know, decision-making and things like that. But to your point, Pharrell, like, the thing I love about Malcolm's writing, and the thing that I say Malcolm is, is the king of context. That's why I love reading your stuff. And that's why, and it really has had an influence on, on my writing because I feel like you have to sort of give context and people sort of give me shit for it sometimes. They're like, you're writing for white people because you, so many of the things I try to explain. But I think that without explanation, even for our culture, sometimes the things don't quite land. So it mm-hmm. has definitely been influential for me. And by the way, you should be writing for white people. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> they That's need a beautiful it. thing. <laughs> they, yes, man. They need the context. They need the context. We all do. You've shifted the paradigm of what people think of black people because you decoded in a way that's understandable to the masses. It's educational. It's truly, it's truly edutainment, you know, which sounds boring, but it's kind of like the shit when you do it right, you know. So I think not only what Malcolm has to say in his point of view and what you have to say, Kenya, and your point of view is important, but I think that there's an art form in making things attainable there's an art form in that like if you don't have that that's like shit just goes over people's heads like it's it's not that the information is not out there and rampant on the internet it's the way it's being presented to people or how hard they got to look to go find that information so it's like when you meet people who are not only really talented at what they do amazing points of view amazing digging power to go get you this information. It doesn't mean anything if you don't land the trick. The landing of the trick is making it attainable for all. Facts. That, that's so true. I want to go back to the idea of ownership for a moment. Mm-hmm. I think it's really because what's interesting to me is that um, if you look at the two fields where the earliest black progress in America was made in entertainment, music, and in sports. And what's distinctive about those two fields is those are two fields where historically ownership is denied to the participants, to the stars, right? I mean, even LeBron today, you can make a very, very serious argument that he's massively underpaid. His value to the league and to, to the Lakers is far exceeds what they pay him. Uh, for, I don't need to tell you about the music world. The music world historically is, you know, none of the money goes to the, I mean, you know, in, relatively speaking, none of the money goes to the artist. It all goes to everybody else. So you, these two fields, you come up, these are the ones that have been opened up first to black people, and they are fields that systematically deny people the chance to own their own talent, creation, whatever. And so that, that this notion that you have to, that part of what it means to be 
someone who is creating something or doing something ex- exceptional is to fight for ownership is the missing piece in a lot of black success stories. That is American enterprise, though. That's always been it. It's always been. People don't realize it's like the founders, you know, the founding fathers, right? There's so much when you say founding fathers. First of all, father, patriarchal. Founding as in company. This is more so a company than it is a country. It's run like a company. You just have to remember, like we're not really citizens. We're a consumer base. They're founders. That's what they call themselves. I think we're for real what you're talking about in terms of equity and things like that. I know that, you know, Tyler Perry, who's become a mentor and, you know, it's so interesting because he's like a, you know, has become a big bro figure to me. And it's so interesting because I started off having such an aversion to Tyler and to like, you know, his lane. And it really had to sort of, it came home full circle for me for my mom, with my mom. And she explained to me that, and I used to walk in and see her and my aunt, and they would watch the VHS tapes of, of Tyler's plays before mm-hmm. he was, you know, on. And, and she said, does her, does her opinion count less than mine? You know, the fact that she likes this, does that count less than mine or someone else's? Like, you know, he's speaking to mm-hmm. people, you know, in a really, really, really primal way. And and that matters. And it, and it really woke me up. And I started realizing that there was, because what he did wasn't necessarily what I had been taught or told or what my interest said, like, was what we should be doing. I didn't give his lane an importance. And then I started realizing that his lane had a great importance. And beyond that, his business acumen was something I could grow from. Mm-hmm. And then I started, you know, having those conversations with you, Pharrell, and just thinking about things. I made, made me really want to say, like, I would love to sort of be a part of being able to forge new ideas. I know that, to your point, Malcolm, we are still so nascent in this country as, as Black people, like in terms of where we're at and what we've been, you know, given and how we're, how we're compensated. I know that this version of it, won't, for me, won't pay off. Like I, like I wanted to, but what it might do is it might pay off for my kids. It might pay off for my kids' kids, you know what I'm saying? But the idea of us starting to get some interest and in, in understanding that equity and ownership is really the key. You have to sort of have some of those first conversations. Well, yeah. To my mind, the single most telling statistic about America in 2020, and I don't have the numbers on my fingertip, is it's not the difference in income between African-Americans and white people. It's a difference in net worth. When mm. you look at that, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. It's staggering. And it goes back to this issue that when you have a group of people who over for a long period of time have been systematically deprived of um, access to ownership, you get these staggering differences in, in, in wealth, which are, you know, and it's, and it's obscured by the fact that the crucial thing about statistic is you don't look at what they're making every year. You're looking about what their families, what kind of accumulated wealth their families have. And that's where the, that's where the difference is. And even, you know, the number of, I know this is true in my family, the number of, of seemingly successful black people who are supporting large numbers of people who are not nearly as wealthy. And that's that's making it difficult for them to accumulate wealth. 
That's mm-hmm. a very different dynamic than you find in in other parts of the of the country. Malcolm, let me ask you a question: Are you are are you? Am I crazy, or are you also biracial? My dad's English. My mom's Jamaican. Yes. You know, I have that whole West Indian supercilious kind of "we're better than everyone else" attitude um, <laughs> that, that, that I'm sure you've run into um, many times. But AKA pride. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Kenya, that's I didn't know is. this. I didn't know your mom. You too have a West Indian mom. This is like yeah, it's from you know, it's a mix of Dominican and Trinidadian, and and it's it's interesting. Like I just in getting back into, I thought I was talking to Pharrell a little bit about this, but getting back into just the whole West Indies, it's such such a prideful place. You know what I'm saying? Because they kept their their identity in a different way than African Americans do. And it's just it, there's a sort of like a you know a, a, an elitism to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a culture where uh, black people were the majority for have been the majority for hundreds of years and have been in control of their own destiny for. I mean, Jamaica has been, you know, has been running itself now for 50 years, 60 years. Uh, it's a very, very different dynamic when you grow up with that kind of security that it's your country and you have ownership, right, of the political process, of the... It's just like you come out of that, you're in a very different space than you are if you're in a culture where that's not been the, been the case. It's a huge advantage. Facts. Listen, Malcolm. Yeah. You got to write Virginia, man. It sounds like it. I'm telling you, we need your we need your decoding. It just might not sound interesting to you, but just listen. There's so much history that comes out of Virginia. It's unbelievable. That's where the first ships with enslaved people came. It's where they created, you know, <laughs> this what should be called Indigenous Day, but you know they start talking about Thanksgiving and shit, like it's really things taken. But there's so many incredible things that come from Virginia. There is a Gladwellian dive into Virginia. Listen, the more you go digging on our nation's history, the more you realize what this has been in the entire time. They're founders, man. You can't even get mad at them. The founders, they were very clear on that. They were like, listen, we're entrepreneurs. We risk everything. We sacrifice our lives. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice everything to like start our businesses, you know? And then they said that they wanted to um, educate and civilize the infidels and the savages. They said that. Malcolm, <laughs> Virginia's waiting. Gotta get, to, yeah. I did my time in Washington, D.C. I lived there for 10 years. You know it's a big difference, right? Huge difference. I know it's a big difference. I was close. Yeah. I was just the other Go-go side of the music river. is amazing, but there's a huge difference. <laughs> Listen, I was there in D.C., in the in the kind of heyday of go go, wow. I remember one one year the Christmas party. I was working at the Washington Post. The Christmas party, God, we we had uh, they rent each division of the paper rented out a different hall, and each got each group got their own go go band. No, listen, the go go's get crazy, but the music is unbelievable. It is uh, hypnotic. And the, the dances that come from it, the music that comes from it, it's unbelievable. It's what just is the such root a game of, it, of go-go? It's a lot of African, yeah, it's a lot of African rhythms, you know, over like a lot of percussive uh, sounds. Were you coming into D.C. to go to clubs and listen to go-go when you were a kid? 
Yeah, when we were like in our teens, Chuck Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, like oh, yeah, yeah, Bustin' yeah. Loose was the number one record. Oh yeah. That yeah. was like everything. Bustin' Loose and then he had Run Joe. He had a bunch of records. And then there was also this band called Trouble Funk that was. I remember every, Trouble Funk. Man. This we're gonna is, drop the bomb on the white boy crew. <laughs> drop the bomb. <laughs> drop the bomb. Oh my God. That that sonically that music is still it's, it's amazing. And DC has some of the baddest women in the world. Oh my God! Howard Homecoming was like man. I, I, there was, it was it. It was it. That was it, <laughs> yes. That's everything. Wait, Kenny, you you went to Howard? I went to Clark, but I used to. Uh, you know, it was a, a like a rite of passage to go to Howard Homecoming the day you get on the yard and see what Howard Homecoming is and how wow. those DC girls, they had the short haircuts wow. back then when wow. those Anita Baker, Halle Berry short haircuts. Um, Dreams. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I Clark was sort of the redheaded, freckled stepchild of black colleges, but I went there because I had went to all boys school for a second in, um, in high school. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to go to Morehouse. And my mom wasn't going to let me go to DC, but all these people were coming out of Atlanta and coming through Atlanta and in DC. And I just think it was a really interesting time just in black culture. And I think that it really influenced for me as a writer, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to tell, you know, definitively proprietarily black stories, but do them in a way aesthetically where they were at a bar that, you know, the greatest or, or considered the people who were considered the greatest filmmakers were doing. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to talk about being Black in the most honest way that I know about it, but I want to do it at a high level. And I still think, you know, I'm moving forward. And that's sort of my mantra in, in terms of the studio is that um, I walked out of, and this is it's going to be just completely honest, I walked out of The Irishman, the premiere, and like it was, you know, everyone's there. And it's like, everyone's saying how great it was. And I was like, yeah, it was really, it was, my house. It was great. But in my mind, I'm like, it was all right. And I felt like it was interesting to me because... Italian Americans' imagery has been shredded since they've got here. And they, you know, have battled what their imagery is. But two of the biggest filmmakers ever, Scorsese and Coppola, were like, fuck that. You know what I'm saying? We want to do the stories that we want to do and talk about the stories we liked growing up. And they went and told stories of mafia families and, you know, wise guys and things like that. And I felt like, you know, Black people's imagery has been shredded. And we're constantly trying to, like, you know you know, worried about our, how we look and things like that. And we, you know, but I felt like everything can't be Jackie Robinson. You know what I'm saying? Everything, it can, you know, everything's not going to be inspiring in aspects. Sometimes you inspire through execution. And so when I started thinking about the studio, one of the things I really want to do is I want to inspire through execution. I'm like, why are we not doing the true crime drama of, you know, black gangs? You know what I'm saying? And like what it's like to, you know, gang life and, and, Los Angeles and New York and, you know, Larry Davis and Felix Mitchell and, you know, Monster Cody and, you know, some of these stories. And I was like, you know, there's a price to pay. All these guys usually end up dead or in jail. So it's not like you're glorifying it completely, but it's also super entertaining, you know, unbelievably profitable in terms of like people want to go see them. I'm like, why have we not done this? And I think we haven't done it because we're so worried about how we'll make us look and things like that. But I feel like I want to tell the stories that, I remember growing up that really sort of like stuck to me. You know, why are we not doing our own musicals? You know, we're the most musical people in the world. They almost never fail. 
Why are we not doing our own musicals? Why are we not doing satire? We're, because of the way we have to lo- live, we're the most satirical, sardonic people in the world. Like, why are we not sort of... And I felt like it's all because we have been conditioned to sort of be in boxes, particularly in terms of like how we, in the film darts, you know, and I feel like that for me is something I really want to push out of. And I really want to, you know, just do the things that I was always afraid to do and inspire through execution and doing them at a high level. So that's what I'm trying to do in terms of you know, doing movies and TV. You know, we have been, as, as creators, we have been fighting against the headwinds of you know, the standard, like Kenya said, we keep getting put in boxes and categorized and classified. Okay, you're this, you're that archetype. But, you know, like you said, like no one told our Italian brothers and sisters how to tell their stories. They just told them the way they felt it. And because they, you know, were European, it's kind of like any of that was acceptable for us. We're either, you know, God-fearing church people or we are thieves or cat burglars, or we're drug dealers, or, you know, and there's just always these boxes where there's like so many gray areas in reality, and those stories never get told because you got these people who occupy the seats of like the gatekeepers who think, oh, that wouldn't sell or that wouldn't work. And it's kind of like, yo, you old as fuck. You don't know. Look at your shoes. Your shoes are wrong. That's the first thing I look at. Like, I'm like, yo, when your shoes are off, like, I can't just really respect anything you're saying, bro. Like, and you don't got to be turned over or nothing. It's just like the The brand and the model. Like, yo, those are big and white and no one's wearing them, bro. Like, I don't get that. Or like, yeah, those like moccasins that they wear, like the old guys and shit. Like, how are you talking to me about any kind of culture, bro? Your shoes look like wallets. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't understand. His shoes says a lot, man. His shoes say a lot, bro. And that's the, the, but that's the thing with us, bro. Like, listen, our our sneakers tell you a whole lot about us. If our sneakers are fresh, we in it and connected. Listen, where we come from, you would never know it. But where we come from, you have aunts who are (laughs) 20 years older than you. And some of them is like in church and then some of them is like not in church yeah. and these sneakers are dialed all the way in. And those are the aunts that know what's hip. They know what's right. Yeah. Sneakers tell you a lot, man. Definitely. And I'm just they saying do. you in there with these execs, bro, where their shoes is just off. So man. how do we get to tell them that their shoes wrong and they listen? <laughs> At a certain point when it gets to a real debate, I'm like, man, you know, and by the way, I wasn't going to say anything, but those things, bro, like... <laughs> Word. Remember, we, I, this was a spike. This is one of Spike's best Nike ads. Remember, is oh it my the shoes? Remember, is it the shoes? Yeah, is like, it the shoes? It's gotta be the shoes. It's gotta be the shoes. Listen, you gotta be. Listen, that's the thing, bro. That's the thing. That's the thing. The ma- the Matrix has a an interesting uh, <laughs> Morpheus of the Matrix when he when Neo gets into the Matrix. He's in that white room and Morpheus explaining everything to him. And he says, talks about how people dress inside the Matrix. And there's a line that the Wachowskis wrote. And I just, it sticks with me. How you dress in the Matrix is your residual self-image. And mm. it, it stuck with me. And, and it's still like, what you wear is your residual self-image. It's, it's how you present to the world before they say a word to you. you know, before you see anything. It's what is inside. You get to present that. And people like, you know, Black people are often sort of critically, you know, we're criticized because like of our, you know, of our swag and how we sort how it's important to us. But no, it is, we, I think, you know, Jim Crow, which I believe is worse than, was, had a more psychological damaging effect on us than slavery. 
We came out of a situation in Jim Crow, out of slavery, into Jim Crow, where you took a people and you said to them, it's over, go be free. And one day we were in shackles and loincloths, and the next day we were in society. What else are you going to do but try to present, have a residual self-image that allows you to be accepted and tells people that you're not what they, on Thursday, were seeing you as? You know, and so we have, we dialed into this atmosphere of America and we had to try to present very quickly a ideology of what we were that was different than you just saw us as. And so it became so tapped into who we were that we wanted to present our presentation from our hair to our clothes and our sneakers, our fools on our feet. We didn't have shoes. You know what I'm saying? That's deep. I agree with everything you said with the exception of Jim Crow being worse than slavery. It's all it's all evil. I I think slavery obviously was worse because of what was happening, but the psychological scars of Jim Crow are more so what we're still dealing with. You know, what I saying? agree with that. I agree with that. I that I agree with. I just think that it's all fucking evil, and I love this country based on all the progression. I'm really in love with the untapped potential. We just haven't hit that yet. You know, there's but a it's, cognitive dissonance. One thing that has always troubled me about even the most well-meaning kind of liberal white people is this is this use of the word they talk about something called black culture or they talk about black people or they talk about and what they what they mean is that it, that it's something very uh simple and uh unified and um there as if it's one entity and the the task of reminding the rest of the world that what it means to be black is a hundred different things to bring back to Black AF, one of my favorite television shows. One of the reasons that's such an incredibly interesting show, intellectually and culturally, is that's what it's about. It's about expanding our definition of what Black culture looks like and sounds like, and in a way that I had just never seen on television. The people who expand definitions and break out of are way more important, ultimately, than the people who are working within the existing genre. And those are the ones I'm always gravitating towards. Pharrell, you do that too in your music. It expands as opposed to sort of sits within the, the, the conventional boundaries. Being in the studio with Pharrell for me was the moment where I was like, oh, this is different. You know, the idea of, and Jay had said that to me, and just like, the, there's certain people who you go into the studio and it's, it, like you're, you kind of like integrate into the, like you get into the machines, you know what I'm saying? And seeing you as a musician and as a creator and people don't understand because, you know, you might have a chain on or you might have, you know, this on whatever, but the <laughs> idea that of how large of a musician you are, you know what I'm saying? And I think that Spike sort of falls in that same thing is the idea that to your point, Malcolm, he is such a large filmmaker, you know, because he's doing something and he integrates and he, you know, he breaks out of the boxes and he, he changed our trajectory. I'm saying he opened us up. I'm saying Michael Jordan is, you know, considered the Michael Jordan of Michael Jordan, but 
Michael Jordan would not be Michael Jordan. I'm sorry. His talent no, would be Spike. there, but Michael Jordan would not be Michael Jordan without Spike Lee. Exactly. You know, saying? Spike Lee opened up Michael Jordan to the world and gave mm -hmm. him, you know, changed basketball and changed, you know, culture and swag and, and, you know, things like that. And that was completely Spike tap, being tapped into the zeitgeist in a way that he, you know, could be. And I think the same thing, someone was talking to me about, you know, they were doing those verses and someone was talking about Euphra and I was like, there's just, Pharrell's genres are, it's too wide. I'm saying there's too many, you know, I think that the only person who could have, you know, they were talking about Dr. Dre, I was like, Pharrell to me still has more, the range is, there's just people don't understand how wide the range goes. And I think that, you know, Spike, you, you hadn't seen it before. And I think now it's, been hard and I love Spike. You know, he taught my daughter and he's always been he's at NYU and he's just said, I want Spike to sit down. I'm glad that it was a bubble season so he doesn't get to go to the Knicks game. And I want Spike to put pen to paper mm -hmm. and just give me one more of those classic Spike movies that taps into like this, this thing that we're doing right now. I think that he could do it better than anyone. It's like, you know, he transcends. I, I looked at Chappelle's monologue on SNL. And I actually liked Chappelle's monologue before a little bit better. This one was was more of a, you know, kind of where Chappelle has landed. Now. And I, I said to myself, I was like, but I still thought it was amazing. Chappelle has transcended the genre of comedy. He's not a comic anymore. Definitely. Mm -hmm. He's he's moving toward the Dick Gregory, you know yeah. what I'm saying, thought, mm -hmm. thought leader. And Chappelle's yeah. moving that way. And that's it's yeah. hard when you're in that because when you've become bigger than the genre or just past the genre, you know what I'm saying? It's... Um, and so I, I think the idea of what Spike was, I think, started off so, it, it just changed so much. And I, I feel like we're all chasing, you know, most black, you know, filmmakers, we're chasing Spike. We're chasing that, you know, the idea of trying to sort of do something different, but you don't set out doing something different because then you can't do it, but just trying to be pure and be the purest version of yourself. And I think Spike did it for so long in such a great way. Agreed. He he's something else. But so are you, bro. Just so you understand. Thanks, so are you. <laughs> so are you. You 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 wear the category all the way out. Like the category cannot hold you back. Like none of those walls. It's like that's why you're able to just do as much as you are and it just continues to go left and right. And that's what we need. I'm I, I appreciate it, man. I'm I'm uh writing the Richard Pryor movie right now. I suppose my first movie I direct and it's it is the hardest thing that I've ever done because wow. you, you realize how far ahead Pryor was. And when you actually dig into Pryor, Pryor, people don't know this, Pryor, he had this big thing where Pryor walked off the stage at the Aladdin, right? And to be a Black guy and be at, at the main stage of Aladdin, he already was huge. But Pryor has two distinctly different careers. The prior that most of us know is not the prior that he was for the first, you know, 15, 20 years of his career. You know, 15, you know, it was, he was a Bill Cosby derivative. He was, you know, he was chasing Bill Cosby's voice and he wasn't being honest and he wasn't being, you know, himself at all, but he had done it at such a high level that he was probably the second or third biggest comic in the world doing it. And to be that big and to quit and to come back and then be the comic that, or the person that everything after you is derivative. Everything, comedy is derivative and it still has not taken any leap forward since prior. 
What causes him to do that transition? It's very interesting. It's very similar to what made Dave Chappelle leave. He looked out into the audience of Aladdin and Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, and those guys were there. And he felt like these dudes are laughing at me, not with me. And he left and he went to Berkeley and he like rebirthed himself. And he became sort of the voice of Black America. And people were like, this guy gets us because he was, you know, being more honest to himself and more honest to his audience than anyone else had done it. He was the first guy to do like white voice. You know, he was the first guy to sort of say, you know, Black people do this, white people do Like he was... So many firsts. He was the first guy to film a comedy concert. And people had not seen anything like that as honest and true as, as that. And then everyone started chasing that sort of like, I want to be myself. I want to be myself. I want to be myself. And so that's still what the best comics are trying to do. But it's, I mean, you watch any of the one of those shows right now and shit is hilarious. Oh, he's a king. I think it's true of a lot of comedians, though, that when they first get up on stage, they try and go for the jokes that will get them laughs early. Like if even at like someone like Albert Brooks is if you go look at his stand up, he has puppets uh, when he first started and then he does modern romance. And that's a personal story. And all his stories from that point on were like personal stories about himself and uh, how crazy he was internally and trying to deal with everything. The difference between Albert Brooks and Richard Pryor, though, is why Pryor is so interested and did not know this about him either, is that white comics, particularly white Jewish comics, had cultural permission to be themselves. If you go way back to Groucho Marx and the beginnings of Jewish humor in this country, they were allowed to mine their own cultural background in an authentic way. Now, they would do shtick and all that kind of stuff, but that was, whereas you weren't given that same permission if you were a black comic. I mean... Cosby evolves the way he is because the lane that was open to someone like Cosby was, that was one of, one of the roles, was the avuncular kind of kindly family man telling super clean stories, right? That was, mm-hmm. that you had permission to do that. You didn't have permission to do what Richard Pryor was doing in the, in the 1960s. Um, I mean, look at, look at how uh, the difference between Lenny Bruce in the 60s and what black comics are doing. I mean, Lenny Bruce is angry, he is political, he is profane, you know, and that's fine. They could accept that. But it was specific to, a, you know, to a culture that had, that had this long tradition in that, um, in that world. Had the freedom, had the card to say they freedom. couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's crazy to think about it that way. That yeah, idea I- of cultural permission is super interesting. And it's, again, it goes back to this... It's why these people who break out of the mold are so valuable, because they're, it, it takes a certain amount of genius and determination to be the one who does the thing you're not allowed to do, you're not permitted to do in the culture. And internal support. I, you know, I told you this, I didn't tell you this, Malcolm, but the day you text me, um, funny story to that, I had... Um, I actually had my kids that weekend and they, you know, if, if I was, no, I was going to have to wake up and go cook. And I had, you know, I wake up every day and I was, I'm not, I'm the guy who reads the reviews. So I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. Like I don't act like I don't care about reviews. I read them all. And <laughs> so black AF was beyond polarizing and beyond sort of like, like there were like people who were doing like think pieces. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing a think piece? It's a show, man. Do you like it or not? But like, we don't get to do different things. You know what I'm saying? Like if we do something different, it like, it's like a stir. And so it was like a cause to stir. And the Guardian 
had done a whole like six page article on what what Kenya Barris missed on Black AF. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, Guardian? And it's like the Guardian's my paper. You know what I'm saying? Like it was that's the paper. That's the you know. And so I was. What you I just missed. read it. Your yeah, idea. I what you missed on your idea. <laughs> Imagine. And so I had just read the Guardian article, and I was literally sick, and I knew I was going to have to go start making bacon and eggs. And I got this text, and I'm like, what? And I'm like, this is my hero texting me, and I, and it was such a nice you know text, and I felt like. It's like, that's the great and beauty of, of thought, you know what I'm saying, and things, is that we can have contrasting things. And that's why I really, it, it helped me with Black F, was that that was the kind of art that I want to do moving forward. I, I want to do things that cause people to have different, different thoughts. Because the Guardian is, is the, the Guardian, right? But Malcolm's the Guardian's guy, you know what I'm saying? Like, the idea that it was two people who have a relationship, who have different ideas on same thing. That's beautiful. But I think that you need to have people who can encourage you and say, go try something else because the world may not be ready for it now, but they may look back and then be ready for it in a different way. And I think that's really important that we sort of like, you know, like Pharrell said, you know, we should be writing for white people. And I think it was, I laugh, but he's right. Like, why would we not you know, things sort of write for, write for everyone? You know what I'm saying? But the idea of the context is more important that they get it. Chris Rock has a great joke. They were like, you know, Chris, what do you think we should do about racism in Hollywood? He's like, why are you asking me? You know, he's like, I'm not the one you need to be talking to about that. But the notion of having groups of like-minded people, like that's how art was done. And those salons, those salons were protected by scions. Those salons were protected by people who allowed those artists to not be interrupted and to create art in their way and to sort of push and progress the, the, the culture forward without being, you know, affected by the masses. I think that that's really important. And I think that right now there are great groups of African-American and just, and then, and I shouldn't just say African-Americans. I think we need to start exploring the African diaspora more, but just, you know, there are great groups of, of artists that are making things. And I think that they need to be protected and, you know, put in platforms like this. When I saw that you were, you know, taking back your podcast, I was like, you know, super excited. And I was beyond super excited that I could talk with Malcolm and you, because I think that we need to, as artists, and I don't mean just black, because I think that there are a lot of, you know, Latinx and white and Asian and things like, but they're all within the same, they're all part of the culture, you know what I'm saying? And they're helping us sort of push the culture forward. But I think that we need to have more of our own, ownership and sort of like direction to it without the, you know, and we need to have people like yourself who are scions that allow the art to sort of progress without sort of being perverted or distorted. We're back at ownership. We're trying. That's what we're here to do. That's once, once you realize that like you have the ability to do things, it's, you can't do everything, but if it really interests you and it really means something to your heart and your spirit, and you know, it's going to be meaningful to the culture, it's your responsibility. You know, oftentimes they ask you, like, do you think it is up to the basketball player to become a role model? And da, 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 da. And my answer is no. I don't think it's their role. I would want to think that it is their compulsion. Very big difference. I agree. Well, that's today's episode. Uh, Malcolm, Kenya, thank you both for sharing with us. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Such a fun conversation. And Malcolm is going to do Virginia. 
Let's go, Malcolm. <laughs> and Kenya's gonna shoot it. Let's go, Kenya. <laughs> Full gonna do the music. Come on, man. Other tone, tone, tone. Subscribe to Other Tone wherever you get your podcast from, and follow us on Instagram too. New episodes drop every Monday. Other Tone is hosted by Pharrell Williams, Fam Lay, and Scott Venner. Executive producers are Pharrell Williams, Scott Venner, and Moses Shoyola. Engineers are Mike Larson and Mike Hernandez. Theme music is by Thundercat. Other Tone is produced in collaboration with the team at Gilded Audio, Ivana Tucker, Whitney Donaldson, and Nick Dooley.